a choice right now, right now, between fear and love. It's just a run. Out of the dark night of ignorance and into the shining light of truth. Expounding reality. A population of citizens capable of critical thinking. We don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. There's a, a level of reality where everything dissolves into an ocean of energy. We empower our experience by insisting on our authenticity. That's very profound. Very Expanding reality. Welcome to Expanding Reality Podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Thomas. On this episode, guys, I got a chance to sit down with psychologist Mel Schwartz. He wrote a book called The Possibility Principle, and it is a wonderful read. It is one of my favorite books that I've ever gotten a hold of, and this guy is completely fascinating and absolutely interesting. You'll love this episode. Uh, it is linked down in the show notes as well as his podcast, The Possibility Podcast, which I cannot recommend highly enough. I also, a couple of his TEDx talks are linked down there below so that you guys can just do a little bit further research on him. Absolutely incredible guy. We had a wonderful conversation. So without any further ado, Mel Schwartz. All right, guys, very grateful to have on the show today, Mr. Mel Schwartz. Mel, how are you today, buddy? It's a beautiful day out here. The weather is broken, 70 degrees, sunny, and I couldn't be happier. Beautiful. Well, good. I I have talked about you on some pretty recent shows that I've done with several guests. Uh, Your book, The Possibility Principle, is one that I digested. Absolutely love. It's incredibly well written. The themes in it are fantastic. Your podcast as well, The Possibility Podcast. All of those things, guys, I will be linking down in the show notes. Y'all know how this works. Just go down there and click, and you can find Mel directly. So, uh, Mel, if you don't mind, sir, for my audience that doesn't isn't too familiar with you yet. If you don't mind, just in your own words, sir, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, the problem is when I talk about myself, I get started and I don't stop. It it starts to sound a little egocentric, but um, I've I've remade my life several times. Um, I call them defining moments, whereby uh, you have an insight. You know, typically... When we have insights, they tend to fade and dissolve over time. But I've had a few insights in my life and whereby I stopped in that moment and I thought, wow, this is profound. And if that's the case, I need to head in a new direction. I have to take it to heart. And that's what brought me ultimately here to this work. I guess it was about maybe 25, 26 years ago when I was in business manufacturing women's clothing, living the life I thought I should be living. And driving home from work one day, I had an epiphany, which was I wanted more meaning and purpose in my life. And within 24 hours, I kind of had it. I had a sense of where I wanted to head and what I wanted to do. And that's what brings me here. And so to all of your listeners, I just want to encourage everybody to think and realize that You can remake any aspect of your being, of your identity, and of your relationships that you choose to. Just have to suspend disbelief. And that's why I'm here. Absolutely. And creating your reality is one of the underlying themes of this show, among many, man. This It's called expanding reality. We talk about all kinds of stuff on this show, but I have 
really been in the habit and practice of uh, recreating my life personally. I've been sharing this with the listeners. It's an ongoing journey that we've all kind of been going through together. And I've been grateful enough to uh, pay attention to the acorns that the universe leaves, the little synchronicities, right? And <clears throat> excuse me, it is to that end that we met, actually. Uh, you popped up on Instagram one day and uh, my listeners know that this is a way that I've found several incredible guests and made some fantastic connections. And I'm grateful that we met. When we connected that day, I got your book. I downloaded it immediately. I went through it in about a week. It's a little over six-hour audiobook listen, and it is perfect. Like I said, the the defining themes in your book are so profound that I liken it kind of to a uh, Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. It's very, very dense in the fact of wisdom, and it's very uh, readable in the fact of that you can digest the information, but the wisdom in it is something that I found so enlightening. And so I'd like to go over, if you don't mind, just a couple of things in your book, but if you don't mind, just tell us how the book came about before we jump into it. I lose track of, of how many years ago, but I developed a uh, newspaper column in my local newspaper, which was pre-pandemic. It was Westport, Connecticut. And I had a column which I called The Shift of Mind. I'd write one article a month. After a number of years, when I had 100 articles written, a uh, close friend of mine said, you know, why don't you turn those articles into a book? That was painstaking and laborious because the articles were all over the place. And my older son, who was not working at the time, he had the misfortune of coming out of graduate school just as the Great Recession hit, started to try to thread it all together. And it's not the way anyone should write a book. But as, as that was occurring, I was becoming more and more steeped in these principles of quantum physics. I'd like everybody to understand that I have no proclivity towards science. I struggled in high school and in college to get a C in science. So when I speak about the principles of quantum physics, folks, let's keep this very, very simple. I don't do the math. But the principles are, one, inseparability. So inseparability and I do go into the science behind it. So it's not just an urging of new age mysticism, but it correlates with what new age mystics and Buddhists and uh, Hindus have always spoken about. Or Carl Jung called it unus mundus, one world. Well, science seems to be confirming that. And that's really counterintuitive. Maybe sounds insane, but it appears to be true. So I looked at inseparability and I thought, how would our lives change if we came to see that we all are an inseparable participatory part of what we call reality? That it's not so much out there happening to us as though we're viewing it from a distance, but we are orchestrating it. And that consciousness is the primary driver of reality. I think in my book, I refer to it as a reality-making process. Because if we make a sentence that starts like this, if we say reality is and fill in the blank, we've made an error. Because the is suggests that it's fixed and unchanging. So we need not to use those two be verbs to get us stuck. Is, are, was, language gets us stuck. And I speak about that in my book. So I see it as a reality-making reality process. It is always in 
incessantly creating itself. Think about a wave crashing into shore. So I took the concept of inseparability and looked at how that could create compassion, empathy, and connectedness, and our relationship with ourselves and others. And then I introduced Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Beautiful principle. He was astonished to find it. But unlike the way we were raised and trained to think that with enough data, we could know the future. It came to us from Newton and Newton's determinism. And we start to live life as though we're playing a chess match. Sitting back and calculating, if I do this, what will happen, leads to a lot of fear. And it gets us out of the flow of life. And it has us mistrust our intuition, deeper sense of knowing, wisdom, as you referred to it, or synchronicity, as Carl Jung called it. So I kind of looked at uncertainty and said, what would happen if we welcomed it and embraced it rather than avoided it? And so I came to the insight that certainty or predictability equals fixed, determined, like my life would be like a plot, a script written for me, and I'm a character in the script. But if we welcomed uncertainty, that would equal complete possibility, potentiality. And there's the rub. When we learn to embrace uncertainty, anxiety and fear retreat. So those are the principles to the book. I love it. And uh, I just like I'd mentioned to you in the uh, before we got recording here about Pat Mahan, who does the Like Attracts Like podcast. He had a brilliant observation on this as far as creating your reality, as far as your past self, your present self and your future self existing simultaneously. And the way that he put it was you can actually tell your future self, okay, how do I collapse the wave of possibilities into a finite way of which I'm already living in the future based on the past that I've decided to get to here and based on my present moment that's creating my future. And you can actually kind of communicate between all pieces of yourself in that way. You can look ahead and you can collapse the wave of potentiality into this finite, okay, where am I going? Where do I want to be? But again, you take the, all the little steps along the way uh, to get you there. And also to that point, I like how you call uh, synchronicities intellectual intuition. I find that way cooler of a word than synchronicity because synchronicity is a cool word anyway, but man, you, you just one-upped it there. Um, so I do like the difference between empathy and interdependability that you break down in your book. Uh, that is something that you've already covered here. Um, so if you don't mind, man, another thing that you covered is the power of thought. So when you break down even just the observation between thoughts and thinking, it's, it's one of those things that, again, it's not something that you think about ironically. But when you pointed it out, it, it was brilliant the way that you said it. So if you don't mind, sir, just tell us a little bit about that. Cer- certainly. Um, but you'll have to stop calling me, sir, you're making me too old. <laughs> you know the problem? I was raised well, and I'll blame my folks for it. So Mel, my, bu- my boy. All right, my, talk about us. <laughs> much, much better. Okay. <laughs> so I can relate to that. Um, thought happens. It happens all the time. Most people are not aware of thought activating. In other words, we have thousands of thoughts a day. But we're not aware of thought happening. Thought is tricking us in that it's telling us something. It's telling us the truth. Think of the word truth in quotes. The truth about something. 
So I came to look at thought differently. And by the way, my learning comes from reading quantum physics. It comes from reading philosophers that you may never have heard of, Alfred North Whitehead. And when I have an insight in science and an insight in philosophy, and I think, wow, these are very cool insights. What happens if I put them together? And I put them together, and for me, that's like an alchemy. That's where my creativity happens. So I realized that thought, and I was very much informed about the process of thought by reading the quantum physicist, David Bohm, who did a great collaboration with Krishnamurti, the Indian philosopher. So the, my consideration was, what happens if you can actually see your thought operating? As though you're sitting in front of your TV screen and you're watching your thoughts being transcribed on the screen. He said, wow, I had that thought a dozen times today. It's not interesting. Now, when I can look at the thought and say, what is thought telling me? I am then what I call thinking. There is a me, a sense of myself that is autonomous and sovereign and rises above thought. So I created some exercises um, through my own reflections and through my work as a therapist, because my laboratory is my therapy room. And I, as an analogy, I thought, you know, think of thought as fishing. If you're not going to uh, eat what you catch, you release the fish. So we can create a muscle memory. If we can see the thought, release it, see it, release it. As many times as possible, we'll develop a muscle memory where it feels like you have a second to see the thought before you come, become the thought. Where it's like hearing a knock at the door, you get to choose whether to answer the door or not. So old thought imprisons us. It traps us. And that's why people believe that change is hard. Let's talk about emotion. The moment you have a thought, the thought summons up the accompanying feeling. So we get trapped. So I learned in this process, when I was feeling either particularly elated or vexed or annoyed, I'd stop and ask myself, what thought did I have to set up this feeling? And I could catch it. Maybe it was a few seconds or a few minutes earlier. And having seen it, I could say, oh, that was it. And then my feeling was gone. If it was an elated feeling, of course, you didn't want it to go too quickly. But if it was a problematic feeling, I said, ah, it was due to that thought. Well, it's just a thought. So I find that learning to think and see your thought is just a momentous breakthrough. Absolutely. And again, uh, when you talk about um, the power of thoughts and how they do create your reality, and this is something along the lines of manifestation, but but the way that you're able to break down how you pay attention to thoughts, like in the example that you just gave in your book, was one of my favorite ways to look at it. Because the more I find that you go down this path of enlightenment or of seeking for just something, something true about the world and, you know, truth, subjective versus objective truth, which also you break down in your book. Uh, it, it's one of those things to where it, you really do get to the point where all truth is subjective because it's just, it's up to you and whatever you view is your reality and, and the way you view it. And you can have people describe the same thing, how it makes them feel a tree, right? How it makes them feel they judge this thing. It, it's a different experience with something that's tangible in reality that we can all look at. 
it, it's an interesting process to me. And the way that I, like I said, the way that you broke it down in your book was fantastic. Um, so talk to me about consciousness, because this is referred to as the great problem in science. And that'll set us up to a foundation for the next question I've got for you. Sure. And before we move into that question, I just do want to comment about this word truth. Because in the era that we're living in currently, based upon politics, um, I, I want your viewers and listeners to understand my position. I believe that there are consensually agreed upon truths. I believe that the Holocaust happened and those people perished. Um, if there's an earthquake, or an avalanche, I'm not suggesting it didn't happen. What I'm speaking about here in terms of subjectivity is our impressions and perceptions construct the reality. Um, years ago, I was called for jury duty. I know you've read the story in my book. I believe it's there. And um, the prosecutor, I was a prospective um, juror, and the prosecutor made the error of asking me, could I be objective? And I said, certainly not. I don't believe there's any such thing in the universe, because if there is no separation, that means to be objective, you have to be standing apart and separate. And we're not. So the judge was very interested. And he said to me, well, what question should we be asking you? And I said, Judge, do you have beliefs? He said, well, of course I have beliefs. I said, of course, we all do. Beliefs are biases. They're subjective. That's what a belief is. God help us if we had no beliefs, we'd be robotic. So I said to him, what you should ask is, can we be in touch with our bias and still feel you can do a fair job as a juror? Now, if we could communicate with one another, friendships, family, politics, different races, different religions, instead of antagonistically, if we could speak to each other about the filter of our bias, how things feel, how they look to us, we might actually learn to collaborate. But when we argue truths, facts, they don't change minds, and they just harden us. So I do believe in certain phenomenon and occurrences that there is and should be a consensually agreed upon truth about what is happening and not happening. Our perceptions of those experiences will vary. So I just wanted to dis discriminate between anyone who thinks that I'm suggesting there's no such thing as a truth or a fake news. Right, right. And what's interesting too is that the the objectivity of truth lately has been, or subjectivity rather, has been something that's been very interesting because you will have people that argue facts and then facts get distorted. And then now you have people, the more convincing you are on your argument then creates somebody's objective truth. And it's not necessarily the case. It just seems that it's interesting how we live in this time of just such confusion about how people feel. And it's really because I, I don't, in my mind, it's just because people are so led to believe anything and that they don't really look within themselves. They don't understand how participatory the universe is. And they look at things as just, well, it's just laid out there before me. The answers are going to be given to me and that's where I'll go. Now, the problem is when they're faced with two opposing or contradictory 
understandings that they're presented with the belief of, okay, which one do you believe? They don't know where to go. And this is where the confusion lies. And now you're just operating on more of a convincing if, or whatever you're more convinced by. Well, that's an excellent point you're bringing up. We, we as a culture, um, are experiencing a critical loss of critical thinking. And critical thinking requires us to invite dissonance, to embrace confusion and complexity. But as a culture, we do the opposite. We dumb down. We think it's right or it's wrong. When I'm asked what I call an either-or question, either which I speak about in my book, either-or questions is, is it this or is it that? I've retrained my mind so I cannot answer it. Because either or questions oversimplify reality and we create horrible errors. Uh, this goes all the way back to Aristotle, who provided us with either or thinking. So if someone says, is this good or is it bad? Uh, they may get frustrated because I can't give a straight answer until we explore, well, what do you mean by good or bad? We need to dive into the complexity to get to the other side and reach some, some simplicity on the other side of complexity. And in my work in relationships, boy, is that, that, that is uh, just, just such a sacrifice to human relations when we oversimplify. But don't even ask, what do you mean by that word? What does that word mean to you? What does it mean to me? We have such curtailed, um, insufficient communication with each other that we're talking past each other. The communication is the heartbeat of a relationship. And we're using words without even inquiring what that word means to you, what that word means to me. So I can go on forever about this. Get me back on track to answer your questions <laughs> well, now. I, well, I will point out, though, that in your book, you do have some wonderful examples of some couples. Of course, their names have been changed for obvious reasons. But you have some wonderful examples of interactions and how you'll catch some of your clients or patients uh, on a particular thought, and then you really catch them. And it and what's interesting about it, the example you use, it, couples can all empathize with. You know, I mean, my wife and I, we you you battle this, not not even battle, you re-articulate and reaffirm the way that you can communicate with one another constantly. And it's, you know, but but the longer you're together, if you could stick it out, I kind of compare uh, relationships to a manual transmission car, okay? A little rough at the beginning, um, a lot of grinding of gears and stuff like that. And then when you finally figure it out, it's not smooth sailing, just step on the gas. There's still interaction that happens throughout the drives from there on out as you drive that car, but it gets smoother. Your transitions get smoother. You recognize how to read the road a little bit better. You're more in control of the way that the direction, you know, if we could stick with the metaphor, the direction that the relationship goes based on your interaction and your willingness to put in the work to go through the gears, to go through the steps and to keep on the right track as far as communication goes. Now, again, uh, your book, guys, I'm going to link this in the show notes. Please go down there and check this out. It's one of the best I've ever read. And so thank you again. That's why I messaged you right away after I read it and said, man, I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be great. So um, let's get back to consciousness being the great problem. Well, consciousness is referred to as the great problem for a number of reasons. Um, the problem seems to go back to Descartes, the great 17th century philosopher. When Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, one sentence literally split apart mind and body. 
I think, therefore I exist. And it's amazing the power of one sentence. So nowadays, people talk about the mind-body connection. I gave a talk a number of years ago, and I began the talk, the talk was called Beyond the Mind-Body Connection. And I began by saying there is no mind-body connection. And people in the audience were shocked or surprised, not what they were expecting to hear from me. I said, we have to look at the word connection. I believe mind and body are as one. Therefore, the word connection is a misrepresentation. A connection takes two separate parts and connects them. You see, new age thinking and holistic thinking has not gone far enough. Mind and body are no different than the head and tail of a coin. They're different aspects of the same. So we think of consciousness through traditional biomedical approaches, consciousness, we think, is derived from the brain. Um, so much evidence suggests otherwise. I think of it this way. If you're walking at the beach and you look at the sand behind you and you see your footprint, you wouldn't think the sand produced your footprint. Your foot left its impression. Well, Neuroscience now for probably 20 years has been revealing that the thought you have and the feeling you have leave their mark, their impression on the brain. Now, we are taught that many people will say, I'm hardwired that way. Well, there are no wires. Again, wires, or I have a screw loose. Wires and screws are the language of Newton's machine-like universe. We have no wires, no screws. And when we study the brain chemistry of people who do deep meditation, the brain chemistry is altogether different. So I believe that brain chemistry is secondary, thought and feeling is first. But let's come back to your core question about consciousness. I equate consciousness with being. Whatever words we choose to describe it, soul, being, spirit, consciousness is an energy. And, it, and I see that energy as temporarily existing in human form, in human life. And a conduit of that is the brain. But the consciousness is primary. And if we look at the unlimited amount of what we call near-death experiences throughout the world, when people are declared dead, they're flatlined, no brain activity, no heartbeat. And they miraculously come back to life and describe exactly what happened when they were presumably dead. Well, there's evidence then that what we call consciousness survived the death of the physical being. Now, in the book, you referred to synchronicity. And I don't suspect we'll have time to go into that in depth today in this interview. But synchronicity is an example whereby consciousness is not limited in any way to physical proximity. It transcends all physical limitations. And we have the ability to connect and correspond with the universe and with one another instantly. So there's no signal being sent. So consciousness, for me, is the fundamental stuff of reality. And the material things that we think are reality are secondary. 
And again, no separation and distinction between consciousness and the physical, but I see consciousness as primary. Yes, and the non-locality of consciousness is what's interesting. And I love that how you related it back to quantum physics, that spooky action at a distance, as Einstein called it, where there are two particles that can interact no matter what the distance is instantaneously, meaning that there's no linear line of communication, that it happens instantaneously, which again leads back to the what you said, which I believe, man, I, or... I don't believe so I have ideas, but what I do like about that fact is that um, it shows that everything is connected and that we're all one. And that we're just individualistic expressions of that, just here to have whatever kind of experience that we want. But we're all connected at a deep, deep, deep level. And that's where consciousness resides if we want to kind of put a place to it. But it does not, yeah, like you said, reside in the body. I mean, and science tells us that, like the NDEs like you're talking about. That's been a big way that they have looked into it. And I think it was, you know, around the 70s when they started figuring this stuff out. And people say, you know, well, why the 70s? It's like, well, we didn't really bring people back from, you know, the brink of death uh, before that. You know, we really didn't have a lot of means to get these stories from people who were dead and then brought back. We have the technology now to do that. And that's when these stories really started popping up. Absolutely so. And in some cases, it wasn't just technology that brought people back. They they came back. Yep, they chose. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but when, you, when you're speaking of... What Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Um, what you're referring to is, and this this was a great thought debate that divided the field of quantum physics for decades. It, it came around the a thought debate, and the debate was this: when two photons, particles of light, are exist in what's called an entangled or shared state. Let's think of them as twins, and as twins, they're absolutely correlated so if one has a negative spin the other one has a positive spin so the thought debate went like this if we take them and separate them by a great distance and change the spin of one what will happen to its twin now einstein is one end of this debate and niels bohr on the other end both men agreed that the other particle would have to change its spin because they're always inversely correlated but the question was how long would it take Einstein, who did not believe in what he called spooky, spooky action at a distance, said, well, it will send a signal, which can't travel fast in the speed of light. Niels Bohr had nothing, no part of that. He said, nope, the change will be instantaneous. So think of this. You could separate this particle by half the universe. You change the spin of one, Niels Bohr is saying the other one will change instantly. Now, Decades passed, and the debate raged on. Einstein famously said, if this is true, I'd rather be a cobbler than a scientist. And in the 1960s, um, a Frenchman had the technology to eventually test it. And John Bell, famous Irish physicist, developed Bell's theorem to test it, thinking he was going to prove Einstein correct. Well, the results were Einstein was incorrect. And this has been tested innumerable times with greater and greater technology, always getting the same result. So some people will say, well, that's the world of quantum physics. What does that have to do with our world? And the problem of consciousness, as you speak of it, is there's this great debate in science and amongst physicists of the one unifying principle. How can we correlate? The reality we see in the quantum world 
which in no way correlates to what we see here in our everyday macro world. And I'm going to be sharing this thought now for the very first time, um, because I realize that it's probably a very naive thought since I'm not a scientist, but here it is for the first time sharing it. So this is the problem of unification or called the theory of everything. We have two different realities, quantum physics and our macro world. And how do you unify them? And here is my thought. What intervenes between the quantum world and the macro world is our consciousness. And maybe it's just that our consciousness in intervening creates two different split realities because it's our perception. But at any rate, that's, that's the problem of consciousness and the split in the scientific community. But I think, without getting lost in the science here, these unifying principles of quantum physics, for me, create a guide for effective, sensible communication, for building self-esteem, overcoming anxiety. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch my TEDx talk on overcoming anxiety, but simply, if we learn to embrace uncertainty rather than resist it, fear retreats. Um, removing the two B verbs from our every sentence is, am, were, was, be, because they're all fixed and inert, whereas other verbs are flowing and changing. So when you say I am or you are, we're creating a cardinal error. We're stuck. We're fixed. Nothing's changing. So we, we, we can't be extreme about it. I have used no doubt dozens, if not hundreds of to be verbs already in speaking with you. But when we become mindful, particularly in personal communication or in conflict, is when we need to avoid the to be verbs. We need to speak subjectively and start a sentence with the word I to invite the other person in to listen. And it would be a different world we'd be living in if enough of us started to move toward that tipping point. And this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Uh, allergy season out here in Texas. So uh, we actually, in your book, actually, you wrote an entire chapter and you pointed it out near the end of the chapter that you used an entire chapter without any to be verbs. And it was fascinating the way that you did it. But even in the chapter, you pointed out that subsequent chapters had to be verbs in it. And it's just an, it, it's because we're so... Uh, used to communicating in that way that it would have been very challenging without explaining it for the whole other part of the book. And I understand why you did it, but I thought it was an interesting exercise in expressing your point. And I thought it was really, really interesting. So um, the, another another thing that I that I like about that that fact that you just said is that it's a very kinetic way of existing. Instead of a finite, like you said, it's it's a participatory type of a thing. And that leads me to my next question. Will you please break down the difference? Because this is one of the best delineations that you have in your book is a me mechanistic universe versus a participatory universe. This is what shifts the mindset, this understanding right here. So what you're referring to is the mechanistic universe or machine-like universe is essentially given to us by Sir Isaac Newton. He had us envision that reality is like a giant machine. Descartes, his contemporary, spoke of it as a giant clock. And the parts of a machine obviously are separate and distinct from one another. So that sets up the notion of causality. If this piece does this, then a given amount of time and 
energy, some other piece will act correspondingly. Now, that machine-like universe, um, again, has no connection other than causality. And we became the parts of the machine, ultimately. So again, as parts of the machine, we speak of having screws loose. Or I'm wired that way. But it's rooted in the notion of separation. There is no interconnectivity. There's no sense of oneness. Now, given enough separation, I would suggest that depression would have to befall us. Because to exist as a separate part in the machine is a depressing way of life. Our loss of wonder and curiosity comes from that machine-like universe. I think it also contributes greatly to greed and runaway greediness. Because as a part of a machine without a soul, without connectivity, there's very little else to do other than play the game, win, compete rather than relate, compete rather than collaborate, win rather than connect. I see them as the themes of destruction and ecological disasters, because then we see our environment and the planet as something to exploit, not to be in harmony and have a relationship with. Now, shifting to the themes of quantum physics, or what you correctly call the participatory reality, is if all of reality presents as one, and we are all inseparably connected, Again, we shouldn't use the word connected. We are all inseparably participating in the creating of that reality perpetually. Then harmony, collaboration, love, kindness, empathy would be the ruling tenet of that reality. And we're not separate observing. We're participating. So there's profound sense of meaning and purpose, not only just in my participating proactively in my own life and orchestrating it, but realizing what I do and don't do, what I think and don't think impacts everything on, on an infinite level. So moving from the machine-like universe into the participatory realm provides meaning and purpose and harmony I, I could just go on and on and on. So I see that as the fundamental and great question that you ask, because in almost all of my interviews, nobody really comes back to this point. It may sound too philosophical or too scientific, but it is the core. Now, I want to add this. I have never worked with anyone, adolescent, young adult, any age, who suffered from depression, who had still maintained a sense of wonder and curiosity. Now, in the machine-like universe, there's no sense of wonder. It's about analyzing, drilling down. Now, wonder, I consider the word wonderful, used to mean something full of wonder, like what a wonderful rainbow. It was full of wonder. Now, look at how we use the word wonderful. Kid comes home from school and gets a great report card, and he says, wonderful. Well, it may be a sense of wonder, but really we're saying, great work. Wonderful report at work. 
We don't respect curiosity and wonder. We've been losing the core principles of what it is to be human and to be able to survive on, on this planet ecologically. And the great thinker Gregory Bateson spoke of an ecology of mind. Think about that. All the chaos we see out there ecologically is simply the fact that our minds, our inner minds are not operating ecologically. We splinter and fracture wholeness. And when we do that, we lose reverence and the ability for sensibility. Here's an example. I do believe I share this in my book. Decades ago, the FDA decided that a particular pesticide was too toxic. And so it could not be sold in this country. But it was okay to manufacture it and export it to Mexico, where they sprayed their produce with it. And they then exported that produce back to the United States. What good does that do us? All right. We're selling, selling nuclear reactors um, to other countries that we had deemed unsafe to have in this country any longer. We are one planet, one universe, all participating. And when we start to think and act from that credo, life looks entirely different. I'm reminded also of the example of Rockefeller with Standard Oil selling his oil that the Nazis needed for their planes. And that was the only oil that would run their planes, but we manufactured it here in the U.S. And a U.S. citizen sold it to the Nazis to kill U.S. soldiers. It, that type of mentality, that is that mechanistic. That is the competition versus cooperation. I've got a good friend that I've had on the show. His name is Victor Bang, and he, does a, he did a great little breakdown on that concept of competition versus cooperation. And his example, of course, was you wouldn't have one hand fighting the other hand. They cooperate together. It's not a battle over the other because they're the same thing, right? And that's where the separation lies is in that understanding. And that is, of course, why I wanted to go back to the mis uh, mechanistic versus participatory. Because when you flip that switch, man, that seemed, I don't know why nobody's ever brought that back to you because that seems like the most underlining fact. I, I just wanted to get the other foundational stuff laid out before we even went there. Um, I will say um, that, like I said, your book, man, I'm going to be linking in the show notes here. We'll, we'll probably wrap this thing up here in just a little bit because I want to save some for inviting you on in the future. Um, I, would, you, would you mind, though, if you don't mind, just bring, bring the tennis ball uh, example that you have in your book of how to being coming alert to our thoughts? I thought that was a wonderful example. And if you don't mind, sure. we'll, we'll end on that. Certainly. Um, so as we were speaking earlier about the awareness of seeing your thoughts, um, I envisioned it this way. Imagine that you're playing tennis. And as you hit the ball and it crosses the net and goes into the other person's court, based upon where you hit the ball, whether they're going to be running in or out, hitting it as a forehand or a backhand, you start to anticipate the return. You start to lean in a certain direction. You put your racket in a certain way you become anticipatory. If you waited until the ball was six inches in front of you, no chance of returning it. So it's an anticipation of that ball that we play tennis and do many things. I've learned, and since I've learned, I have taught the people I work with, that we can be anticipatory of thought. I've learned to be able to sense the thought arising before it actually becomes a thought. Now, that's just a nanosecond, but that nanosecond feels like the world of possibility. And you can learn this. 
Everybody can learn how to do this. So it takes us out of being reactive because when we don't see thought, we have the thought, we have the feeling, we're reactive. But if we can see the thought and see the feeling, that's responsive. And when we can respond rather than react, it's a whole new ball game. So the way to do that also is to be able to say to someone, I'm having a thought. Let me tell you what my thought is telling me. Or, you know, when you said that to me, I noticed I was starting to feel really angry. Let me explain to you why I'm feeling angry. If I notice my feeling, I don't have to become my feeling. It's a whole new level of communication. <laughs> and it's great. You know, and back to the depression anxiety thing, um, I what what's interesting about and I heard the example that depression is because you're worried or thinking about the past, anxiety is because you're worried about the future. You know, and what what I like about your book is because, yes, man, there's a million ways that you guys can live your lives out there. There's a million ways to view why things happen and causality. The, the What I like about it is you put it in very grand terms that are very simple to apply once you get the practice of them down. Because the recognition, again, like the four agreements, man, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, that chapter on... Um, you know, don't take anything personally. That's a really hard pill to swallow. And that's one that's really tough for a lot of people. But once you do get the understanding of that, just like anything in your book, you you can move forward from that now that you have the the tool in your toolbox of power that you have the awareness of it. That's the big thing. And the way that you put things in there, man, like I said, I can't speak highly enough about your book. I've been recommending it to everybody that I that I talk to. Uh, and this was an honor to be able to sit down and speak with you today, man. I, I can't thank you enough for your time. So I will be linking well, all the... I, 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 mean, I just want to add, I've enjoyed speaking with you immeasurably. You're, um, you're, you're very enlightened and uh, wise and... Being able to correspond with you on this level is a real treat. Incredibly grateful. And one of the biggest compliments I've ever gotten. I'd say a lot of this wisdom came uh, right after I read your book. So right back at you there. Um, but thank you for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, guys, I will be linking all the ways to find the, uh, him in your show notes. I'll even throw your TED Talks in there, too, because they're brilliant. Um, if you don't mind, man, in, in your own words, just if you got anything else that you'd like to say or to wrap up here, and then we'll we'll do this again soon, hopefully. So my book is all about possibility. And those possibilities can be achieved. We can exceed them. We can embrace those possibilities. Again, once we let go of imprisoning thoughts and beliefs. So one of the most powerful questions you can ask yourself or someone else is, how did I come to that belief? Because beliefs that go unexamined are blinders that just, they imprison our lives. So we all operate from beliefs, but we owe it to ourselves to ask, how did I come to that belief? And sometimes the answer is simple. Well, it's what my parents believed or what my friends believed. And really, is that the script we want to live? So look at your beliefs and revisit them and open to holding on to some and changing some. That's the gateway for change. Absolutely. And I'm reminded of a 16th century priest who said, if you give me a child from the ages of zero to six, I'll give you a Christian for life. And that's one of those things, once you get in that mode and you really are able to identify your beliefs, and maybe that's something that's 
you know, it backs you up. Okay, well, that's my beliefs and I stand by them. Or why do I feel this way? Oh, okay, because like you said, it's the way we've always done it. And you know, I, I heard a long time ago too that that's the most dangerous sentence ever spoken by humanity is, well, that's just the way we've always done it. And it stifles progress. It doesn't allow any new ideas the, the stage to kind of propagate. And, and so again, um, you know, one thing I'm, I'm reminded of that I actually meant to ask you, I just didn't write it down is, have you ever heard of a um, neuroscientist called Dr. David Eagleman? No, I haven't. Okay. I'm going to send you a video of his because he coined the term possibilian. And I, I was thinking of that, how it related to your concept as well. And his, his replies spe- specifically to science versus religion, that, that kind of a, uh, dynamic. And what he said in, in this talk, and I'll, I'll send you this video, man, it's great, uh, is is that we know too much about uh, the current understanding about science and everything to say that religion's 100% right and absolutely correct in all words. And we don't know enough about science and the future and our universe to say that there is no God or that there's nothing out there. And so he coined the term possibilian, which reminds me of your work, just being that you're open to possibilities, that you're not set in a finite idea that's going to snuff out any type of new interaction, you know, just solidifies cognitive dissonance and that possibilians can't operate that way. We choose not to. So I identify as a possibilian. Like I said, I'll, I'll send you that video because it's absolutely brilliant. Thank you. That's no, great. I, I can't thank you enough, man. This was absolutely wonderful. And guys, again, all the ways to find him will be linked in the show notes as well as his TED Talks. I'll throw those up there as well. So uh, thanks again, sir. This was a true honor, honestly. My, my pleasure. Incredibly grateful for Mel Schwartz spending some time with us on the show today. His book, The Possibility Principle, will be linked down below, as well as his podcast, as well as a couple of TEDx talks that he has done. Incredible guy, uh, absolute wisdom coming out of this man, and I can't wait to speak to him again. This was a true honor. So as far as this show goes, guys, you can find us at expandingrealitypodcast.com. That is where the links to all of the socials are. The YouTube link that will take you to the page, Expanding Reality on YouTube. uh, So you can see this version of this and all the other episodes as well will be linked uh, at expandingrealitypodcast.com as well. If you have any questions, comments, you can do them there. Or I still have the expandingrealitypodcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out that way. Whatever you want. We're not hard to find. I... To that point, guys, go on out into the world this week and every week and pick up a piece of litter. Smile at a stranger, pet a dog or a cat, just whatever you're into. Um, Get out of that left-hand lane. It's very important that you do that. It is just such a pain in the ass when people are behind you. You know how I feel about this, guys. That's why I go on and on about it. So uh, get out of that left-hand lane. We've covered that. Uh, Buy a meal for somebody else behind you in line. Go out into the world of possibilities in which we all exist and choose one that serves you and others in a positive way. It will change your life dramatically. Could not recommend that more. So other than that, guys, go out into the world this week and just be good to one another. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll see you next time.